Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair for Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Research Center. And welcome to our Space Power Forum. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. We're pleased that Lieutenant General Chance, also known as Salty Saltzman, could join us today. As the Chief Operations Officer of the US Space Force, Lieutenant General Saltzman has overall responsibility for operations, intelligence, sustainment, cyber, and nuclear operations of the United States Space Force. Prior to his current role, he most recently served as the Deputy Commander, U.S. Air Force's Central Command, and Deputy Combined Force Air Component Commander, U.S. Central Command, Southwest Asia. And General Saltzman, it's my pleasure to welcome you and thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. And to kick things off, I'd, I'd like to give the mic over to you and give you the opportunity to share some of your thoughts with opening remarks. Well, thank you very much, General Chilton. It's a, it's a real honor to be with you and, and the rest of the group here today. Um, it's, we're only two, little over two weeks from the second birthday of the United States Space Force. And so with my opening comments, uh, I'd kind of like to reflect back on that second year uh, and some of the things that we've done. It's, you know, I, I, you know, as you well know, in the Pentagon, sometimes it, things don't seem to always move as fast as you'd like them to. Uh, but when I look back on the things that we've accomplished, I, I think we've had a great year. Um, and just for context, of course, let's not forget what's, what's going on around the world with the Russian ASAT test recently, with the Chinese hypersonic missile test. Uh, these are dynamic times in the space uh, security environment. Uh, and so we need this space force to be going fast. And so, you know, things like a service level intelligence organization focused on the space threat. We stood that up uh, as the 18th member of the intelligence community, uh, uh, headed up by Leah Lauterbach is the head of our intelligence community um, apparatus here. And, and she's just doing a fantastic job. And, and the level of support that I'm able to give to the Pentagon based on that foundational intelligence that's focused on space threats has just been uh, remarkable. Uh, we've participated in, in the new protected SATCOM resiliency working group, which was an OSD led uh, uh, study. And, and we're making great progress there in defining the, the next generation of protected SATCOM. The uh, Secretary of the Air Force has recently signed an organizational change request establishing the first four uh, US Space Force service components to our combatant commands outside of U.S. Space Command. Of course, we have Space Operations Command that's the service component to U.S. Space Command, and that's that's really our prime uh, key relationship uh, is with U.S. Space Command. Uh, but we also have to have uh, that service connection to the other combatant commands, and we're doing that with the service components. And I can talk a little bit more about that later as well. But uh, the first four, UCOM, Indo-PACOM, Central Command, and U.S. Forces in Korea, We've established those OCRs and we're actively working to stand them up as the, the service components to those commands. We're building a new readiness model, um, how we present forces, how we accomplish advanced training for future threats. Uh, we really needed to relook at the way we presented our forces to the combatant commands to free up the time and have the capacity to work through some of our readiness and training activities. And so we've worked really hard on that over the last year. We established the WGS-11 International Partnership, uh, hosted payloads with, with Norway. We've just done some really great work, I think, uh, with our allies and partners overseas uh, to, to bolster our capabilities across the space domain. We've set the groundwork for about 700 
uh, inner service transfers. And while you think they just raise their hands, swear the oath to the Space Force and change uniforms, as you well know, it's a little more complicated than that. And making sure that these are seamless transitions that don't create any adverse effects uh, on these, um, these new guardians, uh, new to be guardians has been a lot of work um, and, and, and I'm, proud that, I'm proud of the work that we've done to make that a seamless transition for them. Uh, with those people in, in several instances comes a transition, a transfer of wideband SATCOM that the Army has had in the past and the narrowband SATCOM that the Navy has run. And so with the transfer, you know, here in the next few months, hopefully when we get uh, our uh, authorizations uh, approved uh, and get out of the CR, we'll have the ability to control as a space force, as an enterprise, all the military SATCOM under one service uh, from the wideband, the protected SATCOM, and of course, the narrowband. And that's the first. That's a first for the country. And, and, and being able to manage it as an enterprise is going to be an important efficiency and effectiveness drill. Uh, for the entire Department of Defense. The, the Chief Operations Officer, one of, one of my responsibilities is to conduct what we're calling a, a force assessment. So at the highest levels, what are the things that the enterprise needs to work on from a space force perspective? Uh, and we conducted our first assessment, a force assessment last year, uh, and found some very good things to work on. And, and, and it won't surprise you that the vast majority of those centered on readiness activities and building the kind of operational test and training infrastructure and the advanced training requirements to get after readiness. Um, we, most importantly, our, our connection with the US Air Force uh, has to be and will continue to be incredibly strong. Uh, we were of course designed as a service that doesn't have its own organic support capabilities. So we lean on the Department of Air Force heavily uh, to accomplish just our basic support functions. And this year we, we worked with Air Force Materiel Command and established an implementation plan for them to act as our servicing MAGCOM in support of our Space Force bases. Uh, it was tr tremendous partnership with, with my counterpart on this air staff, the A-4, General Barry, as well as the AFMC team under General Bunch. And I think we've got a great plan uh, on the way forward. Uh, the, other, the other important thing that we do now is we're transferring our total obligation authority for weapon system sustainment, MILCOM, and facility sustainment, restoration, and modernization. So that's a S4 function that I also have in my hat as the COO. And we are actively working with AFMC and IMSC uh, to make sure that those transitions are smooth and, again, don't cause any issues uh, in terms of actually executing those dollars. Uh, but it's just been a it's been a whirlwind of a year, uh, and I feel like sometimes you, you you can't see the hands on the clock move necessarily. But when you look back at the end of the year and uh, take stock, it's amazing what we've accomplished. And I feel like we're on a really good uh, footing uh, to go into the year three for the U.S. Space Force. So let me stop there, General Shilton. Well, that's a great rundown. Uh, I I don't uh, know how you find time to sleep with all that on your plate. Uh, and thanks for thanks for your leadership in this area. And, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that the birthday celebration is coming up. It wasn't that very long ago where the Space Force um, had a total of one one person in it. I remember when it first stood up, and that was General Raymond. And to see the progress you've made uh, in in this, this short period of time it is truly phenomenal. And to see how quickly you're growing. Uh, if I could shift a little bit though away from those broader issues, which are each individually important. Talk about a little something that's been in the news lately. And that's uh, the Russian ASAT test. Of course, 
The Chinese uh, demonstrated their irresponsible use of space by creating de debris back in 2007. And now we see the Russians doing the same thing. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about uh, the current Russian Space Force posture and their testing and fielding? And how are we gonna address these kinetic threats, these debris causing threats as we move forward? Well, you know, I, I, I know I'm preaching the choir here when I talk to you about what uh, a debris generating event uh, does for space. Uh, we are now spending a tremendous amount of our time, energy, and capacity to, to characterize the nature of that debris field, because at a minimum, we know that it poses a hazard to the astronauts on the ISS, at a very minimum. Uh, and it's, our, it's one of our basic responsibilities to make sure that we characterize all of the objects that are on orbit uh, to protect not just uh, humankind up there on the ISS, but all of these very expensive, exquisite uh, satellites that we spend blood, sweat, tears, energy, national treasure to put into orbit uh, and, and perform some remarkable services for us. And so I think the best way to describe the, the ASAT test is, is it's irresponsible uh, and hazardous. Th those are the two words that always jump to my mind when I, when I watched and heard about that event and, and continue to watch it as it unfolds. And I think the Secretary of Defense's uh, tenants on responsible behavior in space is one of the ways in which we hope to start to combat this kind of behavior. Uh, if it's, if it's, you know, as I think General Raymond has said before, if it's the wild, wild west uh, out there in space, then it's hard to hold people responsible for any kind of behavior because you haven't really defined what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And so I don't, I don't think we should underestimate how important uh, setting the framework for what responsible behavior in space looks like. Once we set that framework, now we can hold uh, other nations accountable in a broader uh, sense, you know, through maybe the United Nations or through other international coalitions. Uh, and I think that international peer pressure is, is actually pretty valuable. And so once we've established those uh, norms of behavior, now we're going to monitor and, and then hold attribute and hold people accountable that, that violate those, um, those types of behavior. So th I think that's an important step. The second is, is we have to make sure that we have the capability and the capacity from the ground and sometimes in space to rapidly characterize this, these kinds of issues. Because although this one was an ASAT test, uh, there are other times when two objects just run into each other and create debris fields. So a debris generating event can occur by accident as much as it can occur deliberately. And we have to have that capacity to rapidly characterize, figure out where those orbits are, and then start doing projections about potential hazards that those new objects that are created on orbit um, could cause to, again, to manned man space flight as well as, as uh, other capabilities. And so irresponsible behavior, certainly a hazardous condition, and one that we are trying to make sure we have the capacity and capability to characterize as rapidly as possible. Thank you. If I could pull that thread a little bit more, um, it sounds like um, our approach is uh, a diplomatic one at this point, but also technical uh, from the Space Force side to make sure we can adequately describe uh, what has happened, uh, both so we can protect assets on orbit, but also to tell the story. It, it would seem to me though that uh, China and Russia, certainly China has fielded these uh, type of systems. Russia's tested now. Um, ideally, we'd like them to unfield them and step back away uh, and, and stop 
even threatening the use in, in the event of conflict. Do you have any thoughts on what we as a nation and particularly the Space Force can do to deter them from even considering using uh, these types of we weapons should um, you know, a conflict arise or tensions uh, rise up between our nations? I think that's the essential question, sir, and I appreciate you asking it because I see one of our primary responsibilities as a Space Force is to deter a war that starts or extends into space. And so deterrence is at the heart of what we're trying to accomplish. And as you well know, deterrence, there's kind of two sides of that coin. There's imposing costs for behavior that's counter to the deterrence, uh, and there's denying the benefits of it. Uh, and right now we are focused on resiliency because we think that our ability to have more resilient capability, uh, more maybe disaggregated capability on orbit uh, creates a problem for an adversary that's trying to deny us kinetically those capabilities. If they don't know what to shoot at, then what's the benefit of shooting? I mean, that's the basic logic. And so we are actively uh, pouring our resources into building a resilient architecture that no one satellite destruction would dismantle. Uh, and, and the more we can do that, the more we can put that in place, the more it denies the benefits of an adversary from taking such irresponsible acts. And so that's our, that's our strategy initially. Uh, and I think over time, you know, as, as a coalition grows around responsible use in space, uh, I think you'll see that that resiliency starts to raise the threshold of what it would mean to actually conduct a kinetic attack. Um, if, you, if we are partner sharing on satellites so that many nations are affected by a single satellite's destruction, again, that would raise the threshold for an adversary to take that kind of action. And so that's deterrence is the heart of what we're doing. And our initial focus is on denying the benefits by making it hard to determine how do they destroy a mission, not just a satellite. Very good. Um, so, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about uh, all the things you need to build and include a re more resilient constellations. These are future programs because what we have today is essentially what's up there. So it, it would seem to me that the force design effort is a huge effort that would be uh, under, under being undertaken at this time. Not only think about uh, how you improve resiliency, but just the overall architecture of the future for our constellations in space and how we'll continue to provide the capabilities to the other domains that uh, the space force uh, under the Air Force in the past has always done, but also be prepared to gain space superiority should that uh, be required in the future. So those those fo force design, uh, that force design work sounds like a tr tremendously important area. And I know uh, General Raymond uh, directed the Space Warfighting Analysis Center. I, I believe the acronym is SWAC is what we'll hear it uh, referred to as, to work on force design for this future force. And could you comment a little bit on what they're working on, maybe expand a little bit on your past comments and and, maybe the importance of the SWAC and uh, its proper manning and the work that they're doing. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. What starts this is that the architecture that we have was largely des designed for a benign environment. Uh, and, and we just didn't, we didn't talk about combat attribution or combat attrition. We didn't talk about the kinds of, uh, of adversarial behavior that we would have to account for with the force design. And I've said it before in many speeches, when I started flying satellites, you know, our primary concern was longevity of the system. It was so expensive to put these capabilities on orbit. 
that we, we did trend analysis on batteries and solar array efficiencies. And it was all about getting the most out of the capabilities as possible. And we designed a very efficient architecture with regards to that. That's not a warfighting architecture. And it's certainly not an architecture designed knowing that you're gonna have to provide those services, those capabilities in a contested domain. And so now we have to shift and, and you're exactly right. It's not gonna be overnight that we can shift like this. But a couple of things are working in our advantage. One is the work that Andrew Cox and the team is doing out there. The modeling and sim work uh, that, that is able to use hardcore physics, hardcore engineering principles, and evaluate what the right kinds of trade-offs would be between cost, orbitology, and mission accomplishment. Uh, they're, they're using modeling and sim that we really haven't had in the past. You putting digital twins into the modeling and, and simulation uh, environment to see which ones are more promising, which ones might be produced at a lower cost. And so that's that's very informative. And I think it's it's the way we're sharing that information with industry is going to create a powerful way for them to respond back and say, hey, not only is this a capability we think you should pursue, but we're going to provide it back to you in a way that you can run it into your modeling and sim to see if you agree with our conclusions. And so that kind of apples to apples comparison, I think, is going to be very valuable uh, moving forward. The, the second big thing we've got going on is the explosion of commercial space. And that's probably the worst pun ever. I shouldn't say explosion of commercial space, but the dramatic increase uh, of commercial space, the technology that's being employed. I think we're going to be able to leverage commercial capabilities to accomplish a subset of our missions. There will always be some inherently military missions that we have to attend to. But there are other functions, I think, that commercial services will be able to provide. And as we distribute those up, not only does it free up resources for us, but again, it creates a more resilient architecture because of the number of different places and pathways where we can get the information we need. And so I, that's all a part of the grand force design, not just what we build, but also what we buy to make sure that we've got the right kind of resources at the right time and space. And so we're moving in the right direction. As you mentioned, some of these things take a while to get on orbit and put in place. But, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So that's that's the path and the journey we're on. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, Andrew Cox is certainly a national treasurer. He's been working a lot of tough challenges for many years for the command. Um, and but it sounds like his plate's getting fuller and you'll actually need more people more manpower to, to, to flush this out because it's a, it sounds like a monumental effort. Well, it's just, it's a, it's a thought piece first. And if you don't do the hardcore analytics, you're going to make a lot of expensive decisions and we want to minimize the number of regrets we have. Cause once you put something on orbit, you do want to get the most out of it. That's just good stewardship of taxpayer dollars. And so we want to put a lot of investment up front to make sure that the analytics, the physics, support the kind of decisions that we're going to make. And I think it's going to pay off in big, in, in big terms. Great. You also mentioned leveraging uh, industry. Uh, Air Mobility Command leverages industry. I mean, they keep air, certain airlines on retainer. And in times of crisis, you know, we, we mostly move equipment with our cargo airplane and we rely on uh, the airlines to uh, who we pay to uh, help transport our troops overseas and our airmen and, our, uh, and, and people, essentially. Uh, it, it sounds like a similar model. Is that what you're thinking about with regard to being able to uh, rapidly bring on board additional commercial capability in time of crisis? Yeah, it, you know, it, it may be at a time of crisis where we pull things in, uh, capac extra capacity that's needed. 
But it might also be that there are functions that are currently being performed by the Space Force that may not be inherently military functions and that we can just leverage uh, commercial capabilities. The way, you know, I always talk about the fact that when I pick up a phone in the Pentagon, there's very little of that phone telephonic architecture that we own as a military. Of course, we encrypt and we have different networks, but there's a backbone out there that we pay for. Uh, and I think there is a model. Uh, what what I, the phrase I've heard used often is, hey, if we can buy it, let's not build it. Because building it from a military perspective takes longer. It takes more resources. You know, you, I, I know you know well all of the, the acquisition timelines that are associated with that. So where we can buy capability, even on a recurring basis, not in a surge capacity, I think we ought to give it real consideration. Great. Well, we've talked a lot about the uh, architecture and sustainment and preserva preservation of the capabilities that every other domain has come to just, you know, accept as uh, it's kind of like breathing, you know, you take a breath, it's going to be there. You take a, a breath and there's GPS, there's over the horizon comms, there's all the things that space uh, we're so dependent on uh, for our military operations. But what's new uh, now is the notion of uh, fighting in space, you know, because the I can remember when space superiority, superiority, defensive and offensive operations in space, war fighting in space, you couldn't even use these words. Uh, it was against policy to talk about these things, and it wasn't that long ago. And so, and consequently, we weren't allowed to organize, train, or equip our space forces to conduct these types of missions. But now that you can and must take these on to deter and, if necessary, to, to defeat a potential adversary. What kind of training challenges do you have to essentially start from zero and, and, and bring our guardians up to speed, not only uh, from a knowledge perspective of how to do this, but of course, then there's a follow on they've got to have something to do it with. So can you address maybe a little bit of the, the training challenges of standing up essentially a new mission, as well as uh, your needs uh, uh, from a uh, resource perspective? Yeah, that perfect question, because that's central to what I'm focused on as the chief operations officer readiness, because in a word, that's what you just said is, is are you ready for the next fight? And, and I, I see it in three parts. Uh, and like I mentioned, the hardware on orbit wasn't necessarily designed for a contested environment. And our human capital was not designed uh, for a contested environment as well. So we have to shift in both areas. And so the first thing I had to do is figure out how I carve out the time to accomplish the training requirements, because the way we present forces now, you know, they, they basically are constantly providing the capabilities to U.S. Space Command. We're all in 100 percent of the time to accomplish the services that are currently necessary worldwide, whether it's missile warning or precision navigation timing, military satellite communications. All of that doesn't stop. None of it stops. So how do I figure out how to organize and present the forces where it preserves some residual capacity to do the advanced training? And so our new force generation model does just that. It accomplishes basically, and, and I, I'll be honest, I'm a product of, of nearly 30 years in the Air Force. And so I use the, a, the Air Expeditionary Squadron Group Wing concept to say that what we're gonna do is put together the necessary force elements that can do the job on a day-to-day -day basis for U.S. Space Command and others around the world, but it preserves some institutional capacity to do the advanced training. And we get into a rotational cycle that, that accomplishes both. And so that's step one, and we're actively doing that this year. That'll be an important step is the new force generation and presentation model. 
So once we have the time and capacity to accomplish the training, we have to define those advanced training requirements and they're different for every mission. Uh, they'll be threat informed, obviously. So I'm, I'm back to uh, the foundational intelligence that our S2 and the intelligence apparatus is providing us uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, the SWAC's capability, Andrew Cox's capability to not only assess the threat, but see how it impacts our ability to do the mission. And as we look at the threats and how it affects our mission set, we have to define the advanced training requirements of our crews, our operators, but also our support personnel, our mission planners, our engineers, our intelligence, so that they are ready to address a, a threat in a contested environment. And so we're actively working with the units to develop what those advanced training requirements are. And then I think most importantly, and probably the longest lead item here, is we have to have an operational test and training infrastructure so that when these good ideas come from our guardians, we have the ability in, in a modeling and SIM environment to validate the tactics. Will this work in the domain? Do the physics work? Can we close the links, et cetera? Uh, and so the ability to have a virtual environment where we can practice our tradecraft, uh, test our tactics against a thinking adversary and get better and develop over time. The development of that virtual test and training infrastructure, and perhaps live in some areas, will be a critical component. So we organize to give the right time to our people to do the training. We define the advanced training requirements, and then we have a virtual environment where they can practice and validate their tactics and become better at their tradecraft. Terrific. And then I think the final piece would probably be the hardware to operate. But, uh, that on the, on the offensive side, I'm sure there's things you cannot talk about, but, uh, but hopefully we're developing. And, and, uh, I don't think any country or any force is ever deterred purely by defense. So uh, our ability to uh, hold the adversary's capabilities at risk is, will, I think, will be equally important. Would you agree in, in the broad terms? I certainly would agree that in terms of deterrence, denying benefits through resiliency and imposing costs is going to be a, you know, the other side of that coin. And if they think they can get away with things scot-free, and then it changes the calculus. And I, and I think we owe it to at least go through the research and development uh, required to see what it would take to impose costs. Very good. You know, um, you talked about getting your people ready. I can, I can recall, recall just as you said, uh, all our um, space warriors and back under the Air Force days, they, they, they learned how to operate a satellite on actual operational equipment. Uh, the command and control center out at Vandenberg was totally engaged all the time in day-to-day -day missions. And so opportunities to train and bring to, up to speed new folks on the actual equipment weren't really there. Uh, they were constantly being asked to participate in war games, particularly in the last 10 years, or exercises. And it's the same people on the same equipment doing day-to-day -day operations that are, are being pulled in all these different directions. So your points on manning, increasing the manpower there, and perhaps having service retained forces to make sure you present trained and ready forces to the combatant command makes total sense. But it also seems to me uh, there's a need for some simulators as well, both at the tactical and operational level. Uh, is that part of the plan as well? Yes, sir. I think it's, it's part of that operational test and training infrastructure is simulators. And let me just amplify the point you made. Uh, our current simulators were designed to provide procedural currency to efficiently and effectively operate the weapon systems. You know, and I, it's procedural currency, as you know, is necessary, but not sufficient. 
And so what we really haven't had is simulators that where our operators can practice tactics in a virtual environment against a thinking adversary. That's the piece. It's the range complex. It's a professional aggressor force. That's the comprehensive tapestry, if you will, that makes up what an advanced training program requires. And so simulators is a piece of it, professional aggressors so that you have a thinking adversary and this virtual environment where you can actually practice the tactics and get better at the tactics. That's going to be what's most important as we put all those pieces together. I think a lot of what you've talked about here, the, the, the operational test and evaluation, the training range, the test range, uh, those are just fundamentals to every other service and every other domain. But I think uh, a gaping hole in what you see in the Space Forces today, would you agree? Yeah, I, you know, it, it does probably feel like a gaping hole because you and I have had 30, 40 years thinking through this in the, in the stream that was Air Force space and now is the Space Force space aspect. But really, this is the first time we've raised these levels at the service level uh, against, like you said, where we can talk about space as a warfighting domain, as a contested domain. And so I really see it as just the birth and, and initial evolution of this capability. Uh, yes, it's a gap. Uh, yes, we know how, how to fill it because the other services have been doing this for decades, if not longer. And so that, that's just it's just our responsibility as a service now to kind of step up our game and make sure that our operators have the tools and the, and the tactics to, to accomplish the mission we're going to ask them to do. And of course, that'll take resources and TOA. So uh, uh, hopefully we're, you're getting the support you need uh, and will continue from uh, those who hold the purse strings that uh, really will enable all these future capabilities that we so desperately need. Um, if I could go back to something you said earlier, um, you mentioned allies and how they can be a, a, a tremendous help uh, as we go forward and as uh, shared, shared benefits and shared concerns. Um, you know, General Raymond has highlighted how important allies and partners are and how important they are to deterrence, in fact, and, uh, and, and addressing threats uh, in great power competition. One of our senior fellows at uh, Mitchell, uh, Chris Stone, was recently in South Korea where uh, members of the ROCAF and other government organizations spoke about their interest in growing their space capabilities, including acquisition of anti-satellite capability and other counter space weapons. Is the Space Force working with our allies, such as the Republic of Korea, to grow a broader deterrence framework that includes offensive and defensive capabilities? Yeah, I, I think the best way to describe it would be there's there is an ongoing dialogue that's very rich across all of our traditional allies and actually growing some new partnerships. Uh, and whether it's leveraging capacity that they're already investing in, whether it's information sharing, which you know gives us a, a whole broader perspective on, on intelligence around the world, um, the, the, or just sometimes it's just, just basic security cooperation. We train together, we exercise together, we, we, we cross-talk together so that we share and develop best practices and a common attitude towards how best to prosecute a campaign in the space domain and provide the services that our nations need on the ground uh, when that's required as well. I just got back from a trip to, um, to Europe, spent some time in Germany uh, and went over to the UK. And I was, it was remarkable. The, the pace that they're making as well uh, the French just renamed their Air Force to the Air and Space Force. There's a center of excellence there in Toulouse. Uh, we've got the NATO Space Operations Center standing up at Ramstein. Um, 
uh, in the UK, they just established the UK Space Command. Uh, we have a joint training venture with them. Uh, a long history of, of cooperation with all these nations, but to see where they're headed in, in the space domain, it was really refreshing. What was daunting for me is they kept turning to me and saying, and we are taking your lead, meaning the U.S. Space Force lead. What is it that the Space Force is doing? What is it pursuing? And how can we complement that behavior so that we don't spend money that we don't need to, but we can complement what you're spending money on? And I know that's also occurring in Australia and South Korea, those kinds of discussions, Japan. Uh, and that's what's important is that in a complementary way, we take advantage of what all these nations can bring to bear on the problem without spending resources that, that all of the nations are, you know, don't have extra resources laying around. And so how are we complementary uh, in our efforts to increase our capabilities in the space domain? So a lot of great progress going on. Great. It's, our alliances have been important in every other domain, and I imagine it's no different uh, going forward in space, probably even more important in, right. in many areas. It, can, it, let me jump back to the news, <laughs> you know, something that's uh, above the fold or was at least last week or a week or two ago, and that was uh, the Chinese orbital, suborbital, FOB, fractional orbital bombardment system, uh, where it just deployed a hypersonic glide vehicle here recently in a test. Uh, we just learned about this in October, in October and um, some have stated in editorials and commentaries that this is uh, potentially a first strike weapon system that would indicate a willingness of China to link hypersonics and nuclear weapons with space. And I'd just be curious of how you're thinking about this uh, potential new threat. Uh, they certainly have tested it, uh, probably not fielded yet, but as you're looking to the future, what, what do you think Space Force's role will be in addressing this, uh, this new threat? Uh, it, it, we're, it's front and center because this is a, this is a very forward edge technology capability. And I, and I think the words that we use are important so that we understand exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, I, I hear things like hypersonic missile uh, and I hear suborbital sometimes, you know, and, and so this is a this is a categorically different system because a fractional orbit is different than suborbital. A fractional orbit means it can stay on orbit as long as the user determines and then it deorbits it as a part of the flight path. Uh, that also makes it not a ballistic missile. Uh, it may have some missile tendencies as it talks about in glide, but it's not a ballistic missile. And a lot of our warning, uh, you know, is, is based on ballistic missiles because that's the, been the primary threat for so many years. And so it, it's, the, it's incumbent on the Space Force, in my mind, to make sure that we're developing the capabilities to track these kind of weapons before they're launched, ideally, uh, but then throughout their life cycle, either on orbit or in, uh, in execution of their mission set. And if we can track, we can attribute. And if we can attribute, I think we can deter. And so this becomes one of the imperatives of the Space Force is to make sure that we're developing those capacities uh, to be able to track and, and hold accountable uh, nations who are using these kind of destabilizing weapons. I'm glad you uh, clarified uh, what a FOB is, uh, uh, that it is indeed in orbit. And were the Chinese to put a uh, nuclear warhead on this, that would be in violation of the space treaty, which is not a very tough treaty, but one of the things it does prohibit is putting nuclear weapons in orbit around the earth. That's right. Um, it, do you see a diplomatic effort in that regard vis-a-vis um, -vis China? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, and that's no different than any satellite. We wouldn't want a nuclear weapon on any satellite because we don't want them in space. Uh, it's, there's inherent overflight capabilities of any object in space because that's what it takes to orbit. Uh, and so the idea that you could uh, routinely orbit a nuclear weapon over a country is just that, that's why that treaty is in place and it makes perfect sense. And, and so we're certainly committed to not doing anything along those lines. And now we, we need to hold other countries accountable in the same regard. Very good. And you, you touched on it a bit. Um, with um, our ability to track, I mean, certainly we can track things in orbit, but uh, I guess the issue you highlighted is when they deorbit and uh, being able to predict uh, where they're going and, and then hopefully you know, figure out their intent uh, along the way and then respond, be prepared to respond. Uh, our entire um, missile warning, uh, threat warning architecture was set up during the Cold War to anticipate an over the northern latitudes or a North Pole strike from the Soviet Union. And uh, they are effective against an attack on the mainland and from ballistic missile, missile attack from China today. But this new type of approach could um, actually present a threat from the Southern hemisphere to the continental United States. And we, we don't, our past architecture doesn't really look in that direction. So what are your thoughts on what, what the need, what we need to uh, provide the warning, provide the tracking assessment, et cetera, that you just described as essential for um, uh, mitigating the threat of a FOB? Well, so first I'm a history major. Uh, and so go with your strengths. And so I, and I know I'm preaching the choir here a little bit cause you, you know very well how this goes, but you know, over the course of military history, the offense and the defense has waned and waxed as to which one has the advantage in a particular engagement. And the, the advance of new weapons or new defensive techniques shifts that balance over time. Uh, and I think we are just now in a position, we are seeing a shift to uh, uh, where the first strike advantages that are you know, encountered in space, they're there. Uh, the first mover advantage, whoever can go first on the offense has an advantage. So now the, what the military minds have to do is offset that. And, and we have to figure out how you defend against that capability so that that first mover advantage is not there and it rebalances and creates stability across the entire uh, environment. So I think what we're seeing is a cycle of history. When you are behind, you look for ways to seek vulnerabilities of your adversary and your competitors so that you can regain a strategic advantage. And we are seeing that play out. We've had an advantage for a long time. Uh, they've watched how we've prosecuted the campaigns from Desert Storm and, and beyond. And they know that if they can take, take those capabilities away from us, that it can bring more parity to the, the strategic military environment. So I, I see this as a, as a natural consequence of military behaviors, but that doesn't alleviate me from the responsibility of saying, okay, now we have to mitigate this threat to restore that stability. And so we are going to actively figure out what are the capabilities that we need? How do we get more out of our current capabilities? Where do we need to fill some gaps or some holes in our, in our sensors uh, so that we can more rapidly take advantage of it? How do we leverage artificial intelligence to warn us about things that maybe the human eye can't see or detect fast enough? Those are all the things that we're pursuing uh, from a research and development science and technology standpoint so that we can restore that strategic stability. Thanks, and, and you know, while we're talking about missiles that can reach the United States, um, the Russians have put a lot of money into a very long range cruise missiles. Is that something that the Space Force has been asked 
to address in partnership with uh, NORAD Northcom with regard to our, your, the classic roles of providing missile warning and tracking? Of course, you know, we, we own a, a great number of radars uh, that provide missile warning. Uh, we own uh, overhead capabilities uh, from an IR standpoint that can track some of these capabilities. Uh, so it's incumbent on us to make sure we get the most out of those sensors to be able to maybe use them in a way they weren't designed. We have a long history of this. You know, we've, we've gotten the most out of our systems because we have some really talented engineers that can change the way data is fused on the ground and actually pour, pull more information out of the sensor data that we collect. And so that's always an active ongoing process uh, to get as much out of our capabilities as possible. So when we see a new threat, we immediately start pouring resources and brain power into it. How do we determine, track, assess that threat with the capabilities that we have? Uh, and I think we've found some successes and we've found some shortfalls and we're gonna fill the shortfalls with new capabilities and new processing. And we're gonna leverage the places where we have found some success. Thank you. Uh, you all, and one of the things before, I wanna get to Q and A from our participants here, but one last question I'd like to ask you, and you alluded to it earlier, is working with the industrial base. And you know, you, 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 no matter which way you turn, you see a new space company standing up. It's really an exciting time period, uh, both in the commercial civil space area. And uh, we're, we're getting a, a lot of bright young folks uh, wanting to participate in the domain and uh, help out. So there's been some positive press recently from coming from industry leaders lauding the Space Force's transparency, both with regards to threat, threats, but also for with your vision for the future. Um, what more can industry and the public expect to see with the, with the engagement and development of key relationships with the space uh, industry between the Space Force and space industry? Where, where do you want? Where do you see that going? Well, I hope. I hope they already see that engagement with senior leaders in the Space Force is a fairly transparent act. Uh, and I won't speak for my brothers and sisters over on the acquisition side. I have the good fortune of not having to deal with the problem set and the laws and the things, the oversight and things that they have to be responsible for. What I can do, though, is, is continue to share what our biggest operational challenges are. And so I try to, as frequently as possible, I don't turn down very many uh, industry engagements. If the schedule supports it, and, and you know how that goes, I try to stay involved because I think it's important that they're able to describe the operational challenge as well as we could. Uh, and once they understand the operational challenge, I'm convinced that they'll put the be best technicians, the best engineers, the best analysts on those problems and provide reasonable capabilities to us. I talked about the work that Andrew Cox is doing to establish this baseline of modeling and SIM and providing all of that code to industry so that they then can provide proposals back in a digital environment so that we can evaluate them in real terms rather than reading a 300-page uh, proposal and trying to guess if that works in, in the system. So I, I, I'm real hopeful that the, just the new transparency, if you will, and the ongoing dialogue about what our operational challenges are and how you might be able to provide capabilities is really gonna be the key to success moving forward. Terrific, thank you. Well, we're at the, the part in the forum where we where open up uh, the session to questions from the audience who've been listening to the conversations we've been having. And before we do that, I just like to make a reminder to our listeners that you can participate in the Q&A by using the raise your hand function on Zoom on your device. And um, Lucas is gonna help me here 
when we call on you, please unmute your mic and state your name and your affiliation before asking your question. Uh, you can also submit a question in writing using the Q&A function of the Zoom, in which case I'll read the question out loud to our guests. With the numbers we have, I'm sure we'll see a lot of hands coming up here. So, uh, Lucas, if you'd help us out uh, uh, bringing people on board to, uh, to ask their questions. Hey, good morning, sir. It's uh, Stu Pettis uh, uh, for the AFA. Uh, sir, the Guardian Ideal has been rolled out uh, to much fanfare. Uh, however, as the Air Force's or the Space Force's first uh, core personnel document, it seems that warfighting and warrior ethos are absent from that document. Uh, as the head of operations, how do you reconcile that with all your comments on uh, you know the ASAT test and the need for advanced training? Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Stu. Uh, you know, it's a good it's a good point. I, I I don't know that it's absent in there. I think you may have to read between the lines that have been in all the meetings and the development of that thing like I was, but I'll say this, it, it definitely is an aspirational document, focusing on some big ideas around core competencies. Uh, but when I talk to the S1 team, they understand that my responsibility is to do the kind of training uh, and education that focuses on a military mindset and a military culture, culture is all there. The idea is now, how do we take advantage of it? What are the personnel processes that allow us to get the, the maximum number of people through the kinds of training and education system uh, to, to build their competencies the way we want it? And if we just use a traditional model, where we say our top 20% go to this school and then the same 20% go to another school. I don't think we're taking full advantage of our numbers and of, of the maximum educational opportunities. And so we're trying to find this, this new strategy, if you will, that says there's a different way to move through the educational and training systems that a service provides over a career. And so that was really what the, uh, the guardian ideal was focused on. What are the values? What are the competencies? And then how do we set up an infrastructure that allows everybody to individually enhance their capabilities in a way that's consistent with what the Space Force needs? And so it's a little groundbreaking, it's a little aspirational, uh, but I think we're getting after the right kinds of competencies. And I promise I'm keeping my eye on the fact that from an operator's standpoint, that military mindset, that military culture is going to have to be baked in from the beginning. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, sir. I think next we'll go to uh, Teresa Hitchens. Hi, this is Teresa Hitchens with Breaking Defense. Uh, General Saltzman, thank you for doing this today. Um, my question uh, harks back to your initial remarks about the component commands. If you could elaborate um, on where those component commands are, uh, where, uh, how far along you are in setting them up. And also, if you could talk about how they're gonna interact with Space Command, which is also sending out its own people to, I think they just made an announcement that they've got units now in 10 different places. Um, in the different commands, uh, different component, uh, different geographical commands. So if you could talk a little bit about that and how they're going to coordinate, that would be great. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Teresa. That's a really important question. So let me take some time on it. Um, and, and this is a, a little bit of inside baseball, if you will, but there's some nuances here. So what the Secretary of the Air Force did is signed an organizational change request that established from a Space Force standpoint the unit manning documents for our guardians that are assigned into the other combatant commands. And so there has to be an administrative chain from General Raymond all the way down to every guardian. And so the, the current guardians that are not in joint billets over say in UCOM were currently assigned to the air component. 
where I was in Air Force's Central Command. We had guardians and they worked for and under the command of the Air Component Commander. So what we're establishing is a Space Force element, which is a service component, uh, in each of those commands to do to have an organizational structure that guardians uh, can lean on for administrative support, et cetera. When uh, the joint force, the joint staff finally makes the decision that each of these will serve as the combatant service component, meaning the component command to the combatant commands, then they will have a responsibility for warfighting as well as that administrative control. Now, a lot of that will be uh, security cooperation, uh, integrated planning into uh, exercises, uh, you know, planning for what happens when we have to go to war or execute an O plan. How will the Space Force contribution uh, be integrated into the combatant commands fight? And so it's a two-step process. First is the Space Force organization, and then there's the assignment of that organization to be the component command to the combatant command. Uh, but you asked the, the really the more important question is how do they work with U.S. Space Command? So U.S. Space Command, of course, has the global responsibility for the AOR, uh, and and they will also have an important role forward in all of the combatant commands. Uh, and and the analogy I use is like U.S. Transportation Command. U.S. Transportation Command, of course, has the global command responsibilities for all mobility assets, but there are and so they have a forward presence in each of the combatant commands usually at either the air component or at the uh, uh, combatant command itself in the form of a liaison element. And so that combatant command or combatant command discussion has to occur to make sure that there's a tight relationship for the supporting relationship that's required for both those combatant commanders. But then the operational detailed planning of how those mobility assets are integrated into the, the operations plans is done at the component level. And so the, the joint uh, integrated space teams that are out there from U.S. Space Command are critical in terms of connecting the combatant command staffs together. And then the Space Force component would have that responsibility to do the detailed operational integration to make sure that the kinds of operations are synchronized, synergistic across all the components, so that we get the most out of all the capabilities that U.S. Space Command provides, as well as any capabilities that would be sent forward into the combatant commands. Hopefully that helps a little bit, Teresa. Thank you, that did help. I just wanna clarify that, okay, uh, so what you were talking about was the first step with the Space Force and the administrative control um, organization. That's what you're talking about has been done. So that's the step that has been taken, not yet the actual assignment by the commanders, correct? That's correct. So the, the Secretary of the Air Force's authorities stop with the establishment of the Space Force organization of those guardians that are forward in the theaters. This next step is done through the chairman and the joint staff, which assigns that unit as the component to the combatant commands. And of course it's done in concert with the combatant commands themselves. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, Patrick Tucker, go ahead. Thank you, thank you for doing this. Uh, good to see you, General Saltzman. A moment ago, you mentioned uh, tactics and the need to train for advanced tactics in the role of uh, simulation and, and virtual twinning and all of that. And my question is, what tactics does the Space Force need to train for? I know what tactics are when I talk about the Army or the Air Force or the Navy. Are you talking about maneuvering? Are there uh, defensive tactics? Are there potentially offensive tactics? Like what do, what do these tactics consist of that you need to train for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a combination of, of maneuver. 
It's a combination of taking advantage of the capabilities that are inherent on the spacecraft, whether it's beam forming, beam shaping, uh, whether it's about denial of uh, a directed energy weapon to affect our systems by shutting certain systems off in timing and tempo. Uh, there's, there's a number of tactics that we've we've currently developed, and I, and I would project there are a lot that we have yet to develop. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times what we do is we may have a good idea, but since we haven't tested it on any kind of range capability, we haven't tested it against a thinking adversary, I'm not sure whether it would qualify as a tactic or a good idea at this point. And so as we build out the modeling and sim capability to really put our tactics to the test, then we'll be able to, to lean more on uh, the operators to employ those tactics should they need to mitigate a threat. Uh, but the ability to mitigate a directed energy threat, if you will, whether it's RF energy, lasers, et cetera, uh, sometimes that's maneuver, sometimes that's just repositioning, and sometimes that's subsystem operation on the satellite itself to try to mitigate those capabilities. So uh, in, a, in a quick follow-up, uh, you mentioned earlier how the development of those tactics and the, the training environment is going to help you determine what capabilities you might want on future systems. So uh, is this training kind of essential to future um, RFIs and things like that on next stages of the constellation? Like you'll know what to ask for based on the outcome of some of this training experimentation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Let me, let me give you my experience uh, working in the Air Force weapons and tactics uh, arena for you know, the last 20 years or so there's a cycle that occurs and it starts with a threat assessment. Uh, the intelligence community does a threat assessment against our current capabilities, our current O plans. And it says, here's where our systems can be successful and here's where we think are some vulnerabilities. Once those vulnerabilities are identified, the weapons and tactics community goes through a process where it determines, are there tactics that we can employ that would mitigate or cover that down on that gap? If they are, then they test those tactics in a range environment they document those tactics in what we call our 3-1 series. And then those 3-1 tactics are a part, become a part of the training syllabus for all the crews executing those weapon systems. Periodically, they'll discover that, hey, there are no tactics that can really counter this capability. And so what we need is a new piece of hardware or a new pod or a new receiver. Uh, and then the, the weapons and tactics process documents that shortfall in terms of some basic requirements and then those requirements are fed back in through the, the acquisition community to start to develop the hardware or software solution that the operators need. And so it's that cycle that we in the Air Force called weapons and tactics, which informs uh, the, the acquirers as well as the training community to prepare the operators best. And so right now we don't really have that complete cycle accounted for because we don't have the advanced training requirements documented. So that's what I'm trying to do is then build that test and training infrastructure that allows them to validate and the range infrastructure that will provide those capabilities and that feedback uh, through the loop. Thank you very much. All right, sir, I think we have time for one more. So we'll go to uh, Frank Wolf. Yeah, uh, General, um, just I wondered if you had any thoughts on uh, given, given the re recent uh, uh, well, the Russian ASAT test, uh, just in terms of um, active debris removal um, and also on uh, the space-based surveillance uh, system, Block 10, uh, sort of a follow-on to that in terms of uh, uh, rapid detection of, of threats and responding to those. Uh, yes, sir. I, I can't tell you how important it is to rapidly characterize debris. 
Uh, and for those that, that haven't been neck deep in those kinds of operations, it's a very technical process because we just can't literally observe the debris. So we rely on sensors and sensors are very good at telling us where things were. But when you're moving at orbital speeds, you know, 17,000 miles a second, uh, miles an hour, it, it just, it boggles the mind to say a, a split second of error in a radar return creates a, a, a substantial amount of error in where the actual debris is. And so it's a real art and a science to establish an orbit for each of those debris pieces. It's one thing to see a debris and say, hey, there's debris there. It's another to characterize it so fully that we understand the orbit that it's tracing around the earth. And when you have to do that 1500 times uh, over the course of the last month or so, you overwhelm the system. And so having more tools and more sensors to devote to that work is essential. And so every time anybody says, hey, could you use another sensor? The answer is yes. And then I ask what the capabilities are because the ability to collect the data and then have the software fusion that supports characterization and building an orbit for each of those pieces of debris, I think is essential to effectively uh, understanding the environment we're in and providing the kind of indications and warning that we need to provide. And so that, that, that's the maybe the long technical answer, if you will, but the short answer is we need all the sensors that we can get and the, and the uh, fusion engines to put it all together. Uh, just, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, in terms of the, the, the other part of it, which is the, the SBSS, the Block 10, um, is there any going to be any follow-on to that, do you think, in terms of detection? Or... Yeah, I, you know, the, I think the short answer is on-orbit uh, characterization of the space environment is going to be an ongoing mission set. Uh, I, I'm not in the loop enough to tell you whether or not that particular system has a follow-on. I just, I just haven't been briefed, but I will tell you that having an on-orbit capability to help do uh, space domain awareness uh, is probably is going to be an ongoing uh, requirement set. Thanks. If I could uh, ask one uh, final question here as we approach the top of the hour, uh, along the lines of space domain awareness, um, I can remember a few years back saying, if uh, you, we really want to hide something in space, put it in orbit around the moon. No one's watching. <laughs> And, and we talk now about the need for cislunar situational or domain awareness. Uh, your thoughts on that, uh, General Saltzman? Uh, you know, the sky is no longer the limit. Uh, you know, that's the, the buzz, buzz phrase, I think. Uh, sir, I think there's a lot of orbits that we don't take advantage of. Most of it is because we haven't needed to. Uh, but as, as the environment becomes more contested, more congested, uh, and, and our communication capabilities, our antenna capabilities, um, as those grow in capacity and capability, additional orbits start to open themselves up. And, and then you can take advantage of these uh, maybe more exquisite orbits. And so I, I think literally there's an infinite number of possibilities in terms of how do you take advantage of the space domain. We just have to get the right technology in place and, and see what the trade-offs are in terms of cost, uh, system performance, against the orbit that we're, we're proposing. And that's a, you know, that's a balancing act early on, but I, I see nothing but growth in this area. Well, and keeping track of adversary behavior in and around the moon, do you see any opportunities to partner with NASA there? I mean, they'll, as they return uh, Americans to the moon one day, I, I would think they'd be interested in, in that environment as well. Well, and I can't imagine not partnering with NASA at any point as the Space Force. I mean, everything that we learn uh, through our operations in space and everything that they learn through their operations in space. We ought to be tightly integrated, tightly talking, 
lots of crosstalks to get the best out of all that we're learning. If we're, if we're husbanding what we're learning in one particular area, whether it's the advancement of scientific research versus military application, then we're making a huge mistake as a country. And so I'm definitely committed to continuing to have those crosstalks because space is tough. And, and, and if we don't share those lessons learned across the environments, every time we learn them, as we learn them, then we're gonna fall behind our competitors. Terrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hate to say it, but we've come to the end of our Space Power Forum time. I want to, uh, General Salzman, I can't thank you enough for carving out time uh, to be a part of this. I know how busy you are. And uh, to our audience, to everybody who signed in today and, and helped put this all together, from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute for Space Power Advantage Research Center, wish you a great day and happy holidays. <laughs>